Hey everybody, and welcome to the Airport Wild Podcast. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Chris Nikolai. Uh, Dr. Chris is a biologist with Delta Waterfowl who specializes in Canada geese. So we're going to be sitting down talking about the geese themselves, the migration practices, along with some management practices that you might find helpful. So if that sounds like a good episode to you, make sure to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So yeah, so we're sitting down with Dr. Chris Nikolai today. Um, Chris, you're a biologist for Delta Waterfall. Uh, you know, before we get into too much, would you mind giving us a little rundown on you know who you are and some of your experience with geese or waterfall? Yeah, yeah, no, nice to be here. Uh, thanks for the call, and yeah, hopefully we can teach teach folks a bit about geese and all that. So yeah, I've uh, long experience working with waterfowl. Uh, went to graduate school and both advanced degrees are on uh, actually black brant, you know, a species of geese. So I've been in the waterfowl world for, for quite a while, uh, you know, working with a lot of folks on similar topics. And uh, yeah, I worked uh, 10 years with Fish and Wildlife Service where we dealt with uh, permit issues with geese and airports and stuff like that you know there's always permit issues or research programs associated with that you know my current job doesn't do stuff like that uh, working with delta waterfowl it's a lot of uh, long history of of training students so a lot of research projects that you know delta's had a, a great interest in uh, training future wildlife biologists so yeah a, a good switch but uh you know, got a long, broad history of topics. So, yeah, hopefully I can help uh, your audience out with, with understanding some more about geese. Yeah. Um. So I guess we'll just use that little segue and jump right into it. So, so yeah, this podcast, we're going to be talking about, well, like you just said, it, geese. Uh, and we can t- kind of talk about all of them because there's, what, 11 different species of just of uh, branch canadensis at this point with the, between the... Yep. Yep. Good question. Um, yeah. So 11 actually subspecies of Canada geese of two species of Canada geese. Right. Um, there's seven species of geese in North America. Um, yeah, these, these are the fun questions that I can just kind of wear on the, on my sleeve, uh, easy ones, but yeah, no, I think, uh, I did a, another podcast with some other groups. So actually it was internal here. Uh, yeah, I think there's 28 populations of geese in North America representing i think it was about 18 subspecies so uh yeah it gets complex quick you know when you get into the regulatory world oh yeah for sure because i think everybody when you know when they're thinking geese i mean obviously every everybody's mind kind of goes to to canada's uh mm-hmm. you know the, the quintessential goose in north america um but in, you know in addition to them we have well there's canada's cacklers with multiple subspecies between each um then you have, well, then to fill out your dark geese, you've got your, your white fronted, your speckleds or tar bellies, or depending on, I guess, depending on what part of the country you're in for what you call them. Uh, light geese, what do you got? Two or three different species of light geese out there now. Yep. And then Two of them, Snows and Ross. Yeah, Snows and Ross. And then, because um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but blue geese, uh, they're just, a, it's a color phase, but that only applies to lessers, lesser snows. Yep. 
Yep. yep. Lesser snows are kind of like black and, and yellow labs. Yep. Just the color phase of the same animal. Yep. Um, so there's a ton of different species, you know, in, depending on what part of the country you're in and that you might encounter. And with that, uh, in a lot of these, they'll kind of break down into almost break down into the flyways. Cause there's four flyways that break up North America. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Cause we, um, yep. Yeah. And then the only goose you forgot was the emperor goose. So seven species and, and we go from there into four flyways and then, each flyway, you know, it's, and it's an administrative unit. So migratory birds, which all those goose species are, are covered under federal laws. So the Fish and Wildlife Service is in charge of all the regulations, you know, from the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so, yeah, federal agency works with state partners to manage these populations, which, you know, focus on maintaining population sizes given different purposes of taking them you know it could be hunters could be airport take you know all kinds of things like that so yep the, the feds the feds run the show on on uh, regulations for migratory birds right and then because well i guess it was transition right from there so they're migratory birds so they do migrate so for the folks that might not you know maybe it's kind of rough for them uh, but can you break down, like, what is a migration? Like, how do we def- define what a migration actually is? Yeah, no, I'd say a definition of a m- migration is a movement from one place to another. Um, you know, and not all birds move, you know, like quail, for example, or grouse don't move very much. Um, you rough grouse, for example, but a blue grouse actually migrates up and down a mountain. You know, they actually like to go higher in the winter and come down in the summer because that's where the water is and things like that. Then you get some geese that are covered under Migratory Bird Treaty Act, like say a Hawaiian goose that doesn't migrate, but officially they are covered under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So yeah, it's, it's, it gets confusing easily. Um, you know, just cause there's, you know, hardly anything fits in a single definition. Right. So it's, it's broad. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it just takes time being familiar with it and you learn those nuances. But uh, yeah, for the most part, migration is not just a bird thing. You know, mammals do it uh, in the plains, caribou do it in the Arctic, whales do it in the ocean. It's, it's a movement that is typically related to seasons, which is also related to food availability. So it's usually animals moving to where things are better for them so that they can do better in life. You know, go go where the grass is greener, right? Right, right. Because with that, um, with your season, so uh, what are the main seasons when in the waterfowl realm of definition? But what are the main seasons that we're that we can expect to see those? Yeah, I'd say you know typically we think of two, but I'd actually give three. Um, and we'll start with the calendar. So the first one is spring migration, where in North America or the northern hemisphere most birds are moving from their wintering sites to where they're going to breed, which, you know, it could be all the way to the Arctic. It could be, you know, a hundred miles North, like temperate breeding Canada geese, which are a very common concern for airports in the lower 48. You know, they don't really migrate that far, Um, you know, especially for that spring or the fall migration. But one time period that they do, 
move quite far is, um, you know, those big geese, the temperate breeding ones that nest in the lower 48, you know, it takes them about three to four years to start breeding. So there's a couple summers there where they're kind of teenagers, you know, just too young to breed and do all that. Or, you know, they are nesting somewhere where a flood comes or predation's high. And whenever they don't breed, they tend to do a big movement up to the Arctic um, just to get away from all the competition in these southern places in the lower 48. And they actually make big movements. You know, a lot of Chicago geese or Des Moines geese or Denver geese actually get pretty far north, you know, above the tree line to, to molt for the summer. And that was what I'd call the second migration that people aren't really all that aware of. It's probably their farthest one for some of these more common airport problem birds. And then you got the normal fall migration that, you know, we all associate with the October and harvest of crops and all that, where the birds go down to their wintering grounds where they tend not to move a whole lot after that migration and sit still in the winter and ready to start things over again in the spring. Right. Now, just to, just to clarify for the folks at home, because they might use a different terminology, but you mentioned the, the, uh, the temperate breeding birds. Uh, I mean, I can't think of the word for it right now, but pre- the common terminology though is, is usually resident geese. Is that the same, uh, same bird we're calling, we usually call resident goose in different states? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that, um, you know, just being a bird nerd here, you know, that one, I just personally, I just don't like that one because it sounds like they never leave. And then right. there's that fun conundrum. I've been in the Arctic a few times where we're trying to catch these Arctic geese that are smaller. And all of a sudden, you know, you see them and you herd them with geese. And then all of a sudden, there's two different sizes in there. And it's like, oh, we don't want those big ones because those are temperate nesting birds. So, yeah, there's a bunch of terms, you know, we all use inter- interchangeably. So, yeah, we just always got to make sure we talk each other's language, right? Pretty much. Yeah, and then uh, one last thing I want to talk about before we – I mean, we're going to stay in the same, same thing, but I want to dabble on a little bit is, so when you're in the Arctic, um, you're banding, correct? Yep. Usually that's what we're doing, banding or, uh, you know, counting nests and eggs and monitoring hatch. So it's usually a measure of how good nesting is and or just banding for a multiple of reasons. But the primary one is just to monitor harvest rates to, to make sure hunting doesn't uh, negatively impact the populations. Right. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking that um, with those temperate birds, is that how you can tell that they are from like Chicago and Des Moines is if you do have birds banded there, then you go up to up North and you catch them up there and you got them and they're all banded with from Southern breeding populations. Then you can. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. There's a lot of projects back in the day with that. You know, now we got satellite well, we've had satellite radios for a long time, but now they're getting cheaper and cheaper and they can collect data more frequently. And, you know, satellite radios are so cool. <coughs> Excuse me. Yep. Just because they can collect data when you're not looking for them. You know, the old school VHF radios, you actually almost had to see them to know that they had a radio where now you can put them on once and just sit at your desk and see where they move. And yeah, there's a lot of neat projects, especially in, uh, you know, in Illinois. They've been doing some neat projects with satellite birds. And sure enough, the story that guys in the 50s had to do with bands and living in tents forever and, you know, maybe going in with dog sleds or snowmobiles and all that we take for granted now because technology. But, yeah, the story is the same. And 
we've we've learned a lot about making maps about birds. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm just thinking back. I got a buddy. Um, hopefully he'll smile when he hears this. But a shout out for my buddy Adam. He did his master's thesis with he was he was testing the difference between. Uh, I'm probably gonna butcher this, but he was testing the difference between nesting uh, timing of or nest finding timing of mallards and black ducks in northern New York and seeing who was getting there first and seeing if that was having something to do with with the issues, you know, the black duck decline and, or the mallard decline. Um, but remember, we were going down and helping him uh, banding mallards and, and black ducks around Cayuga Lake and all that, all the, the nice viable hens, you know, they got backpacks on and, uh, you know, it was really cool. Actually, like, you know, getting a little sneak peeks at his, at his data once in a while and uh, just being able, but being able to sit there and getting that data that, you know, usually you got to be out there when it's 20 below zero and he's sitting in a nice warm office and, you know, it's, it's right there on a computer screen right for him. But, yeah. uh, but going back to yeah. uh, migration, and I feel like I'm kind of bouncing around. Hopefully I'm not bouncing around too much. But yeah. going back to the migration, so we know there's seasonality to it. You, and you mentioned um, the, the food aspect of it. But when it comes to, to geese migrating, is that all that drives them or – because uh, I know in, in the birding realms, uh, you hear this term zuganru thrown around a lot. Is that really applicable to waterfowl as well? Or are they pretty seasoned and food-based rather than just having oh, no, to go? I, I'd say it's a combination of two things. It's conditions, and then it's also date. Um, and zuganru is awesome. So zuganru is this funky German word that basically just means migratory restlessness. So it's like you know, they know it's coming. They know the nights are getting colder. You know, food's becoming less abundant. You know, imagine a berry eater. Once the frost comes, those berries just fall off and, you know, they're over and can't eat them anymore. So they start getting excited. Well, we got to get down south. Um, no, waterfowl definitely, definitely do that. Uh, you know, they get anxious and test the winds. You know, some of the long distance migrants like Brant, for example, I mean, they'll fly 4,000 miles nonstop from the Arctic to Baja, Mexico, just to, to get somewhere. And they don't want to face a headwind. So they get up and test, you know, the high up, uh, you know, 2,000 to 10,000 foot winds. And if they're not optimal, they'll just come right back down and land, but they'll test it again tomorrow. And, and when it's in their favor, they just pour to the South. It's, it's fun. You know, every, most people get excited about migration. It's such a neat story, you know? Oh, you know, it's unreal. Um, uh, cause there's a term for those, is it a, a grand migration, a big migration? There's these days when you're just out in the field, uh, you could just be sitting on your lawn and it's just, you look up and there's just bird after bird after bird going and just yep, headed the south. Grand passage. The grand passage. Yep. That's the one. Yep. Grand passage. And it's, it's neat, you know, cause it, it there are a lot of birds in the Atlantic Flyway and the Pacific Flyway, but the big migrations in North America come right down through the prairies. You know the shorebirds, the passerines, the waterfowl, etc. And you know that's where you always see the neat stories. You know from airport radars in particular, or weather radars, where they actually see. And there's actually quite a few students and faculty using those technologies to monitor migration and. It's impressive, you know. You get those big, grand passage events, you know, the ones that happen every twenty years, you know, the exceptional ones. Yeah, it's you know anybody and everybody. I mean, it makes the normal news. It gets everybody excited. It's 
as a guy that really likes managing waterfowl and, you know, appreciating them, it's neat to see these examples that get people excited about wildlife, you know? Oh, for sure. Cause I think that's all, that's one of the big issues right now is getting folks, you know, getting them jazzed for it. And I know everybody talks, uh, I think I told you before that we started recording, um, I'm from Northern New York and we didn't always have much of a fall migration of snow geese, but I used to love the spring migration because even without, you know, you know, having anything to do with it, you know, maybe chasing them, hunting them or anything, but like I'd walk out my back, my parents' back door and look up and it would just be just line after line after line of just snows as white birds as far as you could see. Um, yeah. And I mean, those, those aren't grand passage days, but I know those days will just for a kid, you just stand there in awe and just what's happening kind of thing. Yep. Yep. But, it's pretty, yeah. Migrations, migrations, a neat one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing it in from, uh, you know, learning and watching as a hunter, you know, and then birders getting excited about it. We've talked about, and then, you know, like with this, with this uh, podcast and everything, you know, there's professionals out there that are watching it too, for lots of reasons, you know, and like, oh, yeah. they're back and, you know, it's it's time we got to pay attention to them again because they're moving. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, because I'm thinking, like, during the migration, yeah, because that's what we're here for is for the airport folks. And so f- for helping them out, uh, like, I want to kind of go through some different aspects of the migration and, and maybe we can talk about some stuff that'll, you know, get some folks maybe to thinking a bit more about what's going on around their airfields. Um, so – Really, it doesn't. This doesn't change during a migration, but it's the same because wildlife always needs three things to really survive. You know, food, water, shelter. Uh, during a migration, you know, based on their regular, you know, you got their their breeding grounds and winter grounds. But during a migration, is there any fluctuation for how a, a goose will will keep it pretty? We'll stay Canada centric. You know, Branta canadensis. Um, is there any fluctuation between? how a bird utilizes those food, water, shelters and how that might apply to an airport. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, their timing, I'd always consider a Canada goose more of a condition, you know, weather conditions make them move where like blue winged teal, for example, it's for the most part, it's around September one blue winged teal, you know, a little duck just says it's time to go. And, Sometimes frost up north will get them moving sooner or lack of frost a couple weeks later. But, you know, blue-winged teal are always out of the northern prairies by early October. You know, but Canada geese, you know, for example, last year, um, you know, North Dakota froze up solid October 27th, uh, really early. That was that was an exceptionally early year where there's other years freeze-up might not happen to almost Thanksgiving. And, you know, it's – uh, similar to those blue-winged teal, it's only a handful of weeks. You know, you're not like you're talking 10 weeks or something. But, you know, they're definitely pushed later than the teal because the snow gets, gets too deep, you know. And there's tons of corn up here. If they can access the corn, they might sleep on ice. You know, they can eat snow for water. But it's all food-driven. Once the snow comes and that corn's covered, now they got to migrate. Um you know, so two different strategies there. One is what we call, you know, duck managers call calendar birds. They just like to move the same time every year, whether it's hot or cold. Then there's other groups that just like to get pushed when they have to. And as soon as it 
thaws out, they follow that snow line north again. They just love living at that edge, you know, edge of the snow line and freeze line kind of thing. Yeah. And have you seen that, you know, maybe in, in years, and I feel like it's more applicable to the spring migration, but in years where, you know, maybe you have that fluctuating snow line, have you seen birds, you know, kind of seesaw back and forth? You know, Big falling? time. And this, this spring was one of the neatest ones. So I've, I work with a lot of partners that have projects and we all help each other. And there's a lot of uh, these fancy GPS type radios on geese right now on many species out West in the mid continent, et cetera. And they're cool. Uh, and they got solar panels on them. They can recharge every day and we're getting locations every 20 minutes. So, I mean, it's, you're drawing a pretty good breadcrumb trail of where these birds go. I mean, even 10 years ago, if, if you could get three locations a week, that was a pretty fancy device back then. But uh, yeah, we had some radios here in the mid continent that, uh, you know, Bismarck where I live is on I-94 and there's many birds that flew North over I-94, like four different times, you know, they'd come North, big storm would come blow them all the way back down to Southern South Dakota give them a couple days, it warms up, they start eking their way north, and boom, another storm comes, and in one night, they're blown right back. And Yeah, it, it's really neat to, you know, give some information to these stories that people have been accurate about for decades, and sure enough, you know, it's like, yeah, that, that was the same goose, did that over and over again, you know, rather than, you never knew before, I mean, you know, you kind of thought that would happen, but to have actual maps being made is is pretty fun you know the technology always gets cooler doesn't it yo yeah for sure um yeah it really gives some validity to those old anecdotes that you know you always hear about them but it's nice yeah, no like another neat map. one yeah we always had a story there's a group of black brant that uh it's really cool up in alaska there's a pass called anatovic pass where the local communities have a word form for only in the spring for these geese and it's like ah whatever you know they don't fly through the mountains and sure enough they put radios on them and in the fall they go all the way around Alaska and go to Puget Sound but in the spring they go up to the top of the panhandle like Skagway and Haines and fly right across the Yukon Alaska border and fly right over Anaktuvik Pass and these old native stories were dead on pretty cool stuff. Yeah that's fascinating so why the why the difference with seasonality? Yeah, we don't, we just learned about it. And yeah, the, you know, that's just science right there. Science always leads to the next question. You answer one thing, but it turns up more questions than answers, right? So now we got to figure out why don't they just do that? It's probably 2000 miles shorter by doing that. Why don't they do it in the fall? You know? So yeah. Yeah. Those birds that do migrations that are more circular like that, you know, where it's not, they're not following the same line up that they did down really raises questions. You know, you kind of always think it's like, you know, you go into your grandma's house and back, you take the same path every time you're used to it. Why would you go to your grandma's house in a circle? It's right. just weird. You know, is there, you know, maybe it's weather patterns, you know, we don't know, but, but it leads to the next set of questions. You know, why do they, why don't they do the same route? So yeah, it's, it's neat with these new devices. Birds aren't as simple as we think they are, you know? Oh, no. You know, they kind of gives a whole new meaning to the term bird brain, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> For sure. So, I mean, I'm thinking going back to, you know, when I was a kid, you know, 
uh, looking up in my parents' backyard and seeing all the geese go over is we would see the same thing in New York State where it seemed like the can't like the snow geese that were coming down would come down through the Champlain Valley and follow the Hudson down to down to the coast, you know, the north north of Jersey and uh, Delaware. And, but when they came back, they would go hundreds of miles further to the west and yeah. come up through central New York, through the Finger Lakes, and follow the eastern shore of Lake Ontario to you know because they they do come kind of close again, but um, but you don't ever if you saw. 200 snow geese in the fall that was a lot of snow geese but yeah. 200 snow geese in the spring you know that was ah, that's just another flock going over kind of was, mm-hmm. i mean not as drastic but yeah they, they definitely you know they'll have those kind of those circular patterns that you were talking about um but yeah so even you're talking said even with um the water aspect you know food water shelter uh the water like they'll like I know I've got photographs of birds uh, roosted on just these small frozen lakes, um, 20 below zero and winds just ripping over. It looks like a bunch of uh, snow covered rocks. And that was just where they roost up. They look like just a bundle of boulders sitting on shore. Yeah. No, no. I mean, you hear, I don't know how many winter, you know, temperate breeding geese winter at Edmonton, but they do. And I was actually impressed. I moved here to Bismarck right around Christmas this year, you know, Christmas of 19, and we went to a lot of geese here, and it hits minus 30 quite often, but, you know, you've got power. I think the Edmonton reason is due to power generation, so warm water, and then north of Bismarck here, we have the Garrison Dam, which holds back a lot of water, and the, the tail race below it, uh, you know, keeps keeps the river open for a long stretch, and we don't get a whole lot of snow, but we got a lot of corn, so you know, there's open water, there's a food source and, you know, they, they do just fine. Yeah. Um, something, one more little tangent and wasn't, was it the giant Canada back in like the sixties? Was that when, when they refound or something over in like Rochester, Minnesota? Exactly. Was it, and wasn't that like a winter yep, population? Yeah, it was back. Yeah. They thought they were extinct and then they found them down in Southeast Minnesota and yeah, it was pretty neat this weekend. I was actually down at Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge and got a tour from one of the refuge folks there and got to see the old building. You know, they they found them, brought a bunch into captivity and started propagating them and building a huge breeding facility in multi multiple locations and letting them go here and letting them go there, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s. And all of a sudden, you know, the early 90s, they really started taking off in the wild. And by the late 90s, you know, everyone's blown away that now we got too many geese. And, you know, it's a huge topic for wildlife managers and airport guys yourself. You know, all of a sudden, you know, there's papers that have been written in the goose world about an embarrassment of riches. You know, it's just too many of a thing where, you know, if you're over 40, you can remember back when geese were relatively rare. And now with climate change and change in agriculture, Almost all goose populations in North America are at record high time, high all time highs. Yeah, especially the light geese, right? With the especially the mid cotton population of the light light geese. Yep. Yeah, all the snows, the Ross. I would say ten, no, nine of the eleven types of Canadas and cacklers, white fronted geese in both the mid continent and the Pacific Flyway are at record highs. 
another goose that was quite rare was the Aleutian cackling goose. They were down to like 725 uh, back in the 70s. It was one of the first species covered under the Endangered Species Act. And now there's three times as many of them as, as managers want. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a success story. And, you know, now it's over the top, you know. Right. But then... You know, both Brant populations, the Atlantic and the Blacks, are holding their own. And, and let's see, you got emperor geese, which have had an increase and are decreasing again. And then out east, as you've mentioned before, there's this Atlantic population of Canada geese that is of concern. I mean, they're down to being able to shoot one goose a day in the Delmarva Peninsula. But for the most part, they're all doing good. Right. Then you, so you mentioned nine out of the 11. So who are the two that aren't, I know, is it, there's duskies. I know they're, uh, especially in Washington state, they've got a lot of extra regs on them during migration, but I'm not sure who the last one is. Yep. So you nailed it. Duskies is the other. And then I just mentioned the Atlantic population. So of all the, all the Canada's slash cacklers of the 11 kinds, those are the two that are having issues. Um, yeah, and then the duskies, they're unique because as the, the Pacific Flyway is very unique. That's where most of the funky goose populations are, and it's just due to habitat fragmentation due to mountain ranges. You know, the geese are different than ducks. They, they pair in the winter, and, uh, you know, they tend to pair with who they're wintering with, and they follow the female home. And their populations are just so small they became isolated. And after several generations, you know, they become genetically different and adapt to their habitats. So, you know, on the Pacific coast, if you start south, you've got western Canada geese called moffats. As you move slightly north up the BC coast, you run into a smaller goose called a Vancouver. Then you get up into the panhandle of Alaska and they kind of turn into a smaller, darker goose called duskies. And as you get past them, you get into some other geese like lessers and taverners. And it's kind of a smear of a gradient of what they look like. But genetically, they code out differently depending on where you're at. And duskies really focus on that Copper River Delta near Cordova, Alaska. And that's where the epicenter of the 1964 earthquake was. And up till then, that Copper River Delta was more of a grassland you know, really neat uh, potholes and, you know, uh, estuary uh, sloughs and stuff like that. You know, really good goose populations. And that 1964 earthquake came and lifted that Copper River Delta several meters. And by lifting it, it, it dried it quite a bit and it tur- is turning more into a forest. So those geese are losing more and more habitat every year. And you know, that's just one of those goose stories where people are trying their best. They're managed very well by a couple of state and federal agencies. But, you know, what what could you do to really help those again? You know, it's, they're going to be a perpetual problem. They number ten to 15,000 birds, you know, not a whole lot of them. Right, yeah. And, yeah, ten to 15, it sounds like a lot, but that's, in, in bird speak, that's not a lot of birds at all. No, that's nothing when you have the mid-continent cacklers um, you know, there's four or 5 million breeding birds of those, you know, and yeah. estimates for snow geese is 15 million breeders, you know? So yeah. Yeah. yeah 10 to 15,000 is pretty small. We got three, there's three 
populations of geese that are like that. You've got the duskies, like you mentioned, you know, a genetically distinct group that breeds around the Copper River Delta and winters in the Willamette Valley of Western Oregon, Western Washington. Then you got tule geese, which are a really large brown white-fronted goose that nests west of Anchorage and winters in the Central Valley of California. And then you've got a group of brant called gray-bellied brant that winter in the northwest or breed in the northwest Canadian islands. These are the ones we were talking about before that came up, you know, across Alaska in the spring. Right. And they come around in winter in Puget Sound. And each of those three populations are around 10 to 15,000 are genetically distinct. But luckily, state and federal agencies manage them well enough to keep them off the endangered species list. But they're still, I mean, they're still getting, but they're close, they're, they're high enough, you know, to stay out of that uh, extinction vortex and to stay out of that ESL, but they're still just walking a pretty fine line, aren't they, with all that? Yep. So like dusky Canada geese in western, in portions of western Washington and Oregon are no longer legal to shoot. So you have to, hunters have to take a 50 question test and, um, you know, to be able to tell there's actually seven different kinds of Canada or cackling geese there, six of which you can shoot, one of which the duskies is closed. So yeah. you got to be able to know your geese pretty good. And if you get one, you know, it's, it's illegal to shoot. Yeah. And that's, and then, you know, being a migratory, that's a federal offense, not just a state thing, right? Yep, exactly. Um, and then, so staying on these little, uh, just because I, I think this is a fascinating little tangent. This is my favorite part. I was a goose guy back in back in New York, but uh, there's two other. You mentioned the Aleutians. Now I've heard this both ways, but is it Aleutians are the ones that I've always thought had the white neck ring? Uh, mm-hmm. Is that only found in the Aleutian population, or is that kind of a mostly just, or is it just more prominent in the Aleutians? Or am I had the wrong yeah. species? Nope, nope. The latter story that you said there is correct, where white collars can show up in every sub every subspecies of white cheek geese. So and giants in Minnesota have it. They'll actually even have eyebrows too, you know, little white marks. But yeah, everybody can have it, but the Aleutians, exactly like you said, it's quite predominant. Probably ninety-eight percent of them have it, where other goose populations is probably only five percent of them have it. So if you shoot up small Canada goose in the mid-continent with a white collar, it's probably not an illusion. It's probably just a, a Richardson's goose with that happens to have some white around the base of its neck. Right. And then, uh, yeah, cause we used to find a lot of those, we call them gray brows in, in New York, but uh, yeah, they have that gray unibrow or has some extra little speckling going on. Uh, but the last one I want to talk about while we're on this is the quill lake birds. Uh mm-hmm. Now is is that also a, now the name Quill Lake? I forget where Quill Lake actually is, but it's they're named after the location where the breeding population is, correct? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one. So, like, I yeah. never heard of a Quill Lakes Canada goose until I met my wife back in 1998 in one of our first dates. This was in Nebraska. We were working on a swan project, and one of our first dates was out shooting Canada geese, and she's never killed one before. And all of a sudden, the first goose she shoots, we pick up, and it's got this big white band across its chest. It's 
feet are half pink, half black. And we're like, whoa, you know, what's this, a Chernobyl bird or something <laughs> like that. And it's like, ooh, this thing kind of looks weird. And we made some friends at a local gas station that always had good breakfast and stuff like that. And we pulled in that day for breakfast and tell the new friends that we've made about this. And they're like, really? You know, can we come out and, and see this bird? And we bring it out. Oh, my gosh. They said it was the most coolest quill leg goose they've ever seen. And we, I think we actually gave it to them because they were so excited about it. But it's interesting as I've learned more. So quill lakes are in east central Saskatchewan, um, east of Saskatoon, about an hour and a half. Two large alkaline lakes that are really high right now and overfilling their banks and flooding into other places. But um, yeah, so it's, it's part of the, the giant Canada goose world, the same group you were talking about that were rediscovered in Southeast Minnesota back at the time. And so they weren't up there, um, you know, birds breeding around quill lakes were part of the success story of the relocation program and the propagation and the eyebrows that you're talking about. And this quill lake color phase is probably an artifact of a low population size that was brought into captivity and uh, just some mutations that got amplified with a small population size. So yeah, there, you you read some stories, you know, the biologist that was really involved with a lot of this stuff, um, you know, would describe it as, as, uh, you know, just some artifacts of the genes that were left over and then propagated. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's more common. I, I always, I see pictures of Quill Lake skis weekly. Oh yeah. That's one that you always see. Um, it seems like the waterfall magazines really like to, to talk about that every time somebody gets a good shot, you know, bird flying over and you got like I said you got that big white band going across the breast and uh they're just a they're cool looking but I um I definitely have to agree with you though that I think it's a remnant from that it's just a remnant mutation pretty much from those small populations um but uh I guess we should get back on track for airports though I just just being a goose guy I love just talking about that kind of stuff but um yeah so going back to airports though so I want to touch on the food aspect of birds and migration because of migration is this very physical thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's large expenditures of energy. Um, and, you know, birds are going to, you know, during the migration, these birds have to, you know, regain this energy. Is there certain foods that, you know, these geese will key in on during a migration? Right. I mean, a lot of them, you know, in the fall, they're looking for most of them, they're looking for waste grain, leftover agriculture. And, you know, way back, not that long ago, I mean, you're talking forties and fifties, um, you know, waterfowl switched from natural foods to agriculture. You know, they don't, you know, we didn't have big cornfields way back when, or, you know, big machinery to make big fields. I mean, back up through the forties and fifties, for the most part, farms are a lot of quarter sections with families living on them. And, a lot of stuff done by hand or very, you know, basic machines. And over time, you know, we got into larger combines and planters and everything. And for a time period, they were inefficient. And now farm machinery is getting cleaner and cleaner and farms are getting bigger and bigger. And there's not so many hedgerows and all this. So over time, agriculture helped geese explode. Um, you know, and now 
it's kind of questionable because farming practices are so clean now, you know, compared the seventies to now, you know, there's projects that go out and actually measure waste grain out in fields that show that there's not as much grain left in fields now as there used to be. So, you know, most birds, most geese love agriculture. There are some exceptions, you know, black brant out West rarely stop eating their native food, eel grass, emperor geese still eat their native feed. But even on the Atlantic coast, um, Atlantic brant, there is a blight on uh, their food source eelgrass in the 50s, and most of that died off. And they actually figured out how to come inland and start eating grass and soccer fields and highway medians and stuff. So, you know, let alone Canada geese and snows and white fronts, they love agriculture, you know, corn, rice, um, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, in the fall, those carbo carbohydrates are really important. Um, but there's so many of them now, they... There's some data coming out from the southern Mississippi Flyway, you know, eastern Texas, northern Louisiana, Arkansas, the Central Valley of California, that's showing they've pretty much depleted the waste grain supply by late December, or early January, which isn't a problem for a goose, but it kind of hurts the other species, you know, ducks and some other birds. But geese are pretty adaptable because right about then, you know, things are starting to warm up and grass starts sprouting out. They're sprouting up. Yep. And geese can easily switch to grass. It's not as loaded with uh, carbs like um, like uh, a lot of seeds are. But it, it still has, you know, a lot of energy in there. So they can switch over to to grass, which which helps those, you know, helps the geese and gives them a new fuel. And, you know, they, they have that spring migration and they can still eat seeds as they're moving north because they've been unavailable because it's been frozen and buried under snow. But as they're following that uh, freeze line north, you know, there's new green up popping up too. So following that freeze line north, they get to eat the leftover seeds that have been buried, but also the the newly sprouted greens coming up. Right. No, I didn't know that about the Southern Mississippi though. That's that's, I didn't realize how much, how quickly they were going through that, but, uh, well, it's just cause there's so many of them now, and, right. you know, like I was mentioning, you know, farming's gotten cleaner, you know, the tractors are cutting edge technology. You know, these farmers have some magnificent tools to use and to their benefit, you know, they're, they're harvesting more of the crop and there's not as much left behind. So less food, more geese and the story's changing. There's a lot of concerns right now that, uh, these high goose populations might not be able to go much higher. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I know firsthand over the weekend, um, uh, I went horseback riding with some friends. We're going up on South mountain here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And on the route going from a friend's where the horses were being boarded, uh, going to the mountain, we, we went past some uh, chopped corn and there's nothing on the ground. <laughs> oh, there's, there's no birds in them. Anyway. I mean, only birds we have around a lot for here for like, mostly grackles uh we have some canadas here in the valley but for the most part it's you know just little songbirds passerines but uh yeah there wasn't a lick of corn on that field um you know being left over and it sounds like it had been you know it had been cleaned up probably about three weeks prior because that was the other thing i couldn't believe how early they chopped down here but uh yeah it's the new this technology nowadays i mean they're taking every bit they can you know and it's going into you know our stuff our society um but 
on top of that, because the purpose of this is we, you know, as much as I love Canada geese, um, I love watching them. I love listening. I love photographing them. You know, our job is to keep them away from the airports. And so maybe, um, but also, you know, a lot of airports have, uh, because of their financial situations, they, you know, they have agriculture on their property or on airport property near, you know, maybe outside the fence, but nearby. Um, you know, they don't want the geese either, but they still got to have that ag there. Are there any crops that maybe they can have planted that they can still have that ag component for their financial success, but aren't going to be an attractant? Right. And that's where, you know, most farms, I'm not a farmer, um, but, you know, most farms can't plant the same thing year after year. They're always on a rotation, you know, bring in legumes with soybeans and peas or whatever to help you know get nitrogen back in the soil from corn or cotton or whatever that pulls it out so yeah you know if you know i'm not that involved with air airport planning and stuff but yeah i'd imagine it would behoove you to you know talk with the local landowners and not be planting crops that are attractive um next to an airport you know if they're grass eaters probably wouldn't be good to have a side farm next to an airport. You know, if there's corn eaters, um, you know, maybe not that, uh, you know, or rotate a little bit more, you know, like canola is not a, a plant very interesting, you know, that waterfowl get excited about just it's small. It's hard to find. They can't land it and all that. Well, um, yeah, you know, so you just got to get creative and in your farming planting and, you know, it's still, for farmers, it comes down to the bottom line. So there's there's a lot of trade-offs and discussions that have to be made there. Right. I mean, that's going to be, depend a lot on your waterfowl. Because I know, uh, you know, coming at this from as a wild a waterfowler, uh, wildfowl hunter, um, I know we never saw a lot of Canada geese and soybeans in in the Atlantic Flyway. I've heard different stuff in the uh, Central Mississippi Flyways but I don't know how attractive they are there, but I know we never saw them around in beans there versus, you know, you mentioned peas. Um, I know it's not a goose, but uh, with peas, was it, is it, no, maybe I'm thinking of peanuts, but they're saying it's like for sandhill cranes, it can be an attractant. Yeah, no, I've, I hunt sandhill cranes in, in Canada every year. I've never got to hunt them down in the Southern areas, but yeah, I've heard, heard stories of peanut fields are really good. Um, and I, and I, this is the first winter I've ever even stepped foot in a soybean field. I've never lived where soybeans grow. And boy, it just looks like a sterile environment. But I hear stories, you know, lower Mississippi Valley, you know, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, where waterfowl do like peas. But I think it's usually in like flooded situations, you know, where they are picking them up in moist, moist conditions. Um, but yeah, but soybean fields up north, sure. I've never been around them but i'm anxious to see this fall if they get used and what kind of use they get you know oh for sure i mean uh maybe you'll find something totally different than i did um but yeah about 30 percent of the fields where i grew up uh were beans um it's pretty much beans corn and then a handful of haylots and that's really a little bit of alfalfa every now and again for one of your green fields but um but yeah we never really saw a lot of success you know if we ever did anything in a, in a soybean field it was kind of a this is a hunting, hunting term, not more so. Maybe not everyone's going to be, know what I'm talking about, but uh, running traffic. Uh, when we would run traffic um, in soybeans, sometimes we'd have success, and you know, it was just kind of a last ditch and just get them close enough to, 
to do the deed. You weren't trying to get them all the way to the ground kind of thing. But, uh, I know as far as being on the X, you know, soybeans were – I don't think I ever had success with soybeans as far as being on the X, um, mm. at least from a hunting yep. standpoint. But like I said, I mean, as you go through the flyaways, you know, maybe different species, maybe something like a like a white-fronted goose or a speck or um, – I think those birds have got to have more nicknames than anything else uh, in the waterfowl realm. That well, maybe them yeah. and, and ringnecks. Uh, yeah. Well, shovelers too. I know a lot of names for shovelers, but uh, yeah, I'm always impressed that it appears to me that geese can mostly tell what kind of a field it is. You know, when they're up in the air. You know, when you get new migrants arrive. It's not like you randomly find them in any field. You're finding them in the fields they like. You know, like. When I hunt Canada, I mean, I never see a goose in a canola field. I mean, they don't even want to land in that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. No, I think sometimes they're smarter than we think they are. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be something. Maybe you know, because they have different vision than we do. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, you know, but um, I don't know. Maybe they can pick up the UV light or something coming off of it and doesn't look right or or something. I'm, I'm not sure what that would be or what the reasoning mm-hmm. might be, but. Uh, but yeah, I think we've covered just about everything I wanted to go over, just talking about the geese and the migration. And um, I think that's going to be a good place to to cut it off for today. Um, but Dr. Chris, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and and sharing your knowledge of, of geese and the migration with us. Yeah, I yeah, hope, it, hope it helps people, uh, you know, think about it. Because yeah, I know from my past, you know, airport guys are Pretty pretty busy group uh, keeping birds and other wildlife, you know, outside of landing zones and everything to keep airplanes and passengers safe. So yeah, very important topic. Yep, for sure. But with that, I think we're gonna go ahead and uh, close it down for today. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye.